Welcome to the Article to Audio podcast, brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. The the Article to Audio podcast interviews authors who have published research on negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. I'm Michael Gross. I teach in the Department of Management, College of Business at Colorado State University, and I am currently part of a grant and research team with Wendy Adair at the University of Waterloo and her colleagues working with indigenous employees to understand their experiences with relationships, communication, and conflict in the Canadian workplace. I am your host. Today, we have Jason Pierce. Jason Pierce is an assistant professor of management at the Bryan School of Business and Economics. Jason primarily conducts research on ethically charged responses to conflict, managerial problem solving, and scholarly practices. His dissertation addressed the first topic and led him to discover some patterns that led to the research that we are discussing today. We'll be discussing the article co-authored with Lee Thompson, explaining differences in men and women's use of unethical tactics in negotiation, published in Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, Volume 11, Issue 4, in 2018. This article that we're talking about today is the NCMR, Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, Article of the Year for 2019, for publication in 2018. Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, NCMR, is the official journal of the International Association for Conflict Management, and it serves as an outlet for scholars and practitioners who conduct research in negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. We hope you had the opportunity to listen to part one. We're now going to listen in on part two of our podcast with Jason Pierce. Well, sounds like good advice. In your study, um, did you collect did you collect data based on biological sex or by how participants self-identify themselves in terms of their gender? And could you share a little bit with our listeners about um, how biological sex and gender are not the same thing? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, this topic seems to be getting more attention since we published our work uh, unexpectedly, or that it has gotten. It does come up from time to time. And the psychological differences I alluded to before, there's even a lot, there's been debate about that. Um, debate that we'll, we'll try to address right with this, um, with your question here. So yes, we, we focused on biological sex only. And we, now to be clear, we did rely on participants Reporting that we did not do a DNA test or any other intrusive testing to determine, you know, if we were have male or female participants. However, we just took it on good faith that the majority of people, if they said they were male, were actually male or female were actually female. And we have good data to say that's a reliable. That's a 
fair assumption to make. Um, now we did get a lot of blowback from reviewers uh, on both projects. Not not well in each paper. Each paper was one reviewer in particular that took exception with this uh, because there is a certain faction of the population who um, bristles at anything that suggests that men and women are different in any way, uh, despite the obvious uh, facts that they are. And I, when I say obvious, I mean the physical differences are obvious. But even one reviewer said it's only anatomy. Unfortunately, the neuro, neuroscience and the social psychology are very clear. It's not just anatomy. On average is the key qualifier. Very key qualifier. So, for example, with the physical world, I'm a little bit over six foot three, right, which is quite tall for a man. I have met women. I've met one woman in my life who's taller than I am. And I've seen in person, just a handful, right? They exist. They're just not many, right? And and same thing for physical strength and the and the gym. I know some women who are extremely strong, uh, but the differences are very predictable. Same. And so when we talk about uh, self-identifying and gender, we shifted the from the physical world of talking about chromosomal differences of a male being XY and a female being XX, two psychological differences of which there's a great deal of variance, uh, but still on average there are predictable and reliable differences, like the competitiveness and empathy that we mentioned before. So when we talk about competition and empathy, we're actually looking at both things. Where sex predicts gender. Gender are traits that are associated with one sex or the other, or more associated. So competition gets labeled as a masculine uh, trait or gen- as a gendered um, psychological trait. And state, incidentally, as does empathy, be- become considered a more feminine trait. But we, and to be clear, all of us, and, and Scientific American recently had an article uh, highlighting how all of us are some mix of these things, and our research adds to, to that and, and confirms other research that says we do shift situationally. We can shift modes to engage in a more masculine, that's self-interested, or a more feminine, that's other-interested way of being. And anybody that's raised children would understand that very well. So, Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, you use three different studies using three different methodologies in your study. Can you talk a bit about how about uh, each of these three studies that you have uh, and the key methodological choices you made for each study. Sure. Uh, so in the, in the initial paper that was our, fo- was our focus, we were overall what we were trying to demonstrate was that um, and we, we hypothesized and we're trying to confirm, I should say, was that that competition or competitiveness and empathy or empathic concern for others would both explain sex differences in using unethical tactics like lying and negotiations. The previous research had focused on one or the other side, but never had looked at both, or only one, excuse me, only one paper we knew had looked at both, and it was a very uh, cursory look, had looked at both together. So we said, let's really nail this down and say, what is going on? And that previous paper looked at a very broad uh, factor of differences and, and looked at 
very general behaviors and didn't look at specific um, general attitudes, rather, excuse me, rather than behaviors. In our research, we wanted to confirm that this would both would explain and both would explain behavior itself, not just attitudes. So in study one, we we started out with a sample in Chile. I, when I was conducting this research, my first academic job, I was working in Chile at a university there. And we used a simple approach that's very common in the ethical decision-making world of research now, which is to use the SIN scale that I mentioned and we talked about before the few items from. Just the general attitudes or willingness to use those type of behaviors as our dependent variable and to see if there are differences. And the SIN scale historically has shown men more willing to use those behaviors, those tactics, than others, uh, than women, I should say. So we started there, and we introduced also a simple measures of competitiveness and empathic concern that we had come up with based on gender research. And we used that. We found that men and women, the Chilean men and women in our sample, who were business school students there, uh, did differ. The men were more willing to use the tactics. We also found that empathic concern and competitiveness did predict those attitudes or those willing, that difference of willingness. However, they, um, what was surprising is that men and women did not differ in empathy. They only differed, differed in competitiveness in that group. So that's what we did that, with that study. Uh, study two, we wanted to figure out what was going on because we had introduced a couple of new measures. We were using a sample that's not commonly used. It's like my, for example, my dissertation did not involve, only use, uh, involved North Americans and uh, ethnic Chinese, or actually Chinese international students. I should say ethnic Chinese. I should say you know, there were students from China. Um, so we were a bit surprised, uh, and we wanted to figure out what was going on, and we also wanted to see to get closer to the behavior. So we introduced a vignette in which we described a scenario put the that put the participants in a role in which they were negotiating. Uh, with a client, they were a broker trying to arrange a deal to sell an item for another client. They already had a buyer lined up. They already knew how much profit they would get, they would get, and they could lie about how much profit they were going to get in order to get more money uh, and offer less to the client. And so many of them did. Again, the men were more likely to lie or say that they would lie to the client than the women were. And this time with this American sample of business school students, the, the, the expected differences in mediation played out. Uh, and the third study, the main, that, that objective, we shifted and we used a, a situation where people could use, literally could use actual lying to get more money and they could lie to a part, our counterpart uh, for real stakes. So we wanted to make sure that it translated to real behavior, not just pretend behavior. Um, and that again, that competitiveness and empathy would each explain that uh, those choices, uh, and then see you know if we were able to get the same pattern or we get a different pattern as we did in study one and study two. Very nice. Um, what advice would you give about women and men using unethical tactics in negotiation? So, what what f- sort of final advice and thoughts can you leave us uh, and our listeners? Sure. Um, so the, the main advice here is that one is to be aware that 
it is pretty common. So when we look at the scenarios, for example, where it's a competitive situation, we find roughly and repeatedly roughly half of negotiators will lie to get advantage. It's very common, despite being uh, widely discouraged or frowned upon. It's also widely practiced. And therefore, as negotiators, we need to be aware of that. Uh, we also need to be aware that there are consequences to lying. And there's other research that shows that. I just saw a paper that's um, some research that's going on that I uh, looked at uh, that hasn't come out yet. But what it's saying is that some sometimes people do that guilt stays with them. Like don't. So ultimately, one of my pieces is don't do it. <laughs> it's not worth it in the end. Uh, the other is getting, and even if you don't get caught, the guilt can can be problematic. Um, the other is if we want to discourage lying, given it is so common and we're likely to be lied to, we want to try to create try to create situations and be in situations in which competitiveness is kept to a healthy level and empathy is encouraged. But this is tricky. I'll leave it with this because this is we're we're still sorting this out as a community of researchers. Is there's growing research that, and there's not a lot of it, but a few papers I know of, a few studies I know of, is showing that if we try to do things to get our counterparts to feel empathy towards us, which we we would think based on our findings would make them less likely to lie, that can actually backfire. Now that's not our research; that's other research. It's also my experience. If we go, if we try to engage relationally with somebody who's coming from a very competitive position, that can encourage more competitive and more aggressive behavior uh, because it can be make us look like easy targets. Apparently, is the is the takeaway. So that's that's recently found in the in the negotiation work, and that has a longer precedent in bullying, for example. That if somebody is dealing with bullying, it's another line of research I'm working on now. I'm shifting my focus to. And my wife found that paper and said, hey, you know, this could explain some behaviors we've seen and we know of from experience is that trying to respond to aggressive or unethical behavior in a relational way, as we're often as we often teach our students in negotiation to do to be relational and to value relational outcomes. Unfortunately, that can can uh, encourage hostile and unethical behavior is what the, the findings are suggesting. So apparently it's up to those who control the environments and the education of people to be more focused on encouraging empathy. That is excellent advice. And it's also, your research is excellent. It's very fascinating. I love reading about it. I want to thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome, Michael. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you to our guest today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope you will check out the podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. And that's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you can find additional sources and links to materials cited in this episode. A special thanks goes out to Dr. Chi Wang, Editor-in-Chief of the journal Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, or NCMR for short, for her support and assistance with this podcast. On behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Sai, Laura Reese, Jennifer Parlamis, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Sai, thank you for listening.
please tell a friend about our podcast. We hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings NCMR from article to audio.